0: Welcome to the July 20th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick review of what's new in annals over the past two weeks since our last podcast. I'll start with a commentary about an issue that is the topic of much discussion among physicians and others who work in healthcare. Should COVID-19 vaccine be mandated for healthcare workers? Authors from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School say the case for mandating SARS-CoV-2 vaccination among healthcare workers is substantially stronger than the case for mandating influenza vaccination, for which mandatory receipt as a condition of employment has become widely accepted. Organizations that are contemplating mandating SARS-CoV-2 vaccines may be reluctant to move forward while the vaccines remain under emergency use authorization. Some are concerned about legal challenges. They also must overcome various reasons for vaccine hesitancy among employees who have not yet been vaccinated. These healthcare workers may be persuaded to change their minds if the argument for vaccination were sufficiently clear. Like the influenza vaccine, mandatory SARS-CoV-2 vaccination is intended to protect patients from healthcare-acquired infection and to protect the workplace from disruption and expense of worker illness. This is important because SARS-CoV-2 infection is far deadlier than influenza, with a mortality rate of 1 in 100 to 250 compared to about 1 in 1,000 for influenza. Vaccines are extremely effective at decreasing infections overall, severe disease in particular, and transmission. They are therefore very effective instruments to both keep workers safe and decrease the likelihood that patients will get infected when they come for health healthcare. Healthcare workers should be reassured that the benefits of vaccination outweigh safety concerns and other reasons they may object to vaccination, including fear of post-vaccine side effects, concerns about fetal safety, philosophical disagreement, and perceived invulnerability to serious infection. The authors encourage organizations to start drafting policies, educating employees, and ensuring easy access to vaccines. An observational study in Barcelona, Spain found that implementation of same-day rapid screening, use of face masks, and improved ventilation was associated with very low rates of SARS-CoV-2 transmission at an indoor mass-gathering live concert without physical distancing. The brief research report is published in Annals. Indoor mass-gathering events have been banned since the beginning of the pandemic because of the high risk for spread of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Protocols are needed to prevent virus transmission during such events as society opens up again. Researchers from Barcelona State studied electronic health records to determine if previously tested containment measures could prevent high rates of transmission during an indoor live music concert with 5,000 attendees. On-site nurses screened all attendees with an antigen-detecting rapid diagnostic test and filtering masks were required to be worn during the entire event. Singing and dancing were allowed, and no physical distancing was required. An analysis of 4,584 attendees found six cases of COVID-19 within two weeks of the concert. Of those persons, three were identified in contact tracing studies to known index cases who had not attended the concert. Therefore, their infection was unlikely to occur during the event. One woman may have had COVID-19 and attended the event during the incubation period. The transmission source of the two remaining cases could not be identified. The authors note that the study was conducted in a community with low vaccination rates and moderate infection rates. Nonetheless, they conclude that their findings have implications for informing safety measures at similar mass gathering indoor events. New treatment modalities are urgently needed for patients with COVID 19. The World Health Organization Solidarity trial showed no effect of remdesivir or hydroxychloroquine on mortality, but other effects of these drugs are not known. Next is the report of a randomized trial that evaluated the effects of remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine on all-cause in-hospital mortality, the degree of respiratory failure and inflammation, and viral clearance in the oropharynx. The trial, known as NOR-Solidarity, is an independent, add-on, randomized controlled trial to the WHO-Solidarity trial that included biobanking and three months of clinical follow-up. It was conducted in Norway and enrolled adults hospitalized with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. 185 patients were randomly assigned and 181 were included in the full analysis set. Patients received remdesivir, N equals 42, hydroxychloroquine, N equals 52, or standard care, N equals 87. No significant differences were seen between treatment groups and mortality during hospitalization. There was a marked decrease in SARS-CoV-2 load in the oropharynx during the first week overall, with similar decreases and 10-day viral loads among the remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, and usual care groups. Remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine did not affect the degree of respiratory failure or inflammatory variables in plasma or serum. The lack of antiviral effect was not associated with symptom duration, level of viral load, degree of inflammation, or presence of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 at hospital admission. The researchers concluded that neither remdesivir nor hydroxychloroquine affected viral clearance in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And remaining on the topic of remdesivir, Annals published the latest update of the American College of Physicians' Living Recommendations on Remdesivir for the Treatment of Patients with COVID-19. This update identified one new study that did not change the ACP's previous recommendation that clinicians consider remdesivir for five days to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who do not require invasive ventilation or ECMO. Also published on July 13th with an update of a living review on masks for prevention of respiratory virus infections, including SARS-CoV-2, in healthcare and community settings. The authors found few new eligible studies, only two new observational studies in healthcare settings, and no new studies in community settings. So no evidence was available that changed the strength or the substance of the conclusions of the prior review. Next is an in-the-clinic review on menopause. Read it for practical advice on the evaluation and care of patients experiencing menopause. The review includes information for patients and a CME MOC quiz. The next article reports a study that found that antibody-based multi-target fecal immunochemical test, or Mfit test for screening for colorectal cancer, had better diagnostic accuracy in detecting advanced neoplasia compared with the standard FIT test because of its ability to better detect advanced adenomas without compromising specificity. These findings support further development of enhanced fecal immunochemical testing as a modality for population-based colorectal cancer screening. Fecal immunochemical tests detect human hemoglobin in feces and have been proven for effective reduction of colorectal cancer incidence and death. Although the sensitivity of FIT in one round of screening is high for colorectal cancer, the sensitivity for relevant precursor lesions, advanced adenomas, and advanced serrated polyps is much lower. This underlines the clinical need for non-invasive screening tests that has higher sensitivity for precursor lesions without increasing false positive test results. Direct acting oral anticoagulants are at least as effective as warfarin in patients with atrial fibrillation, and generally have lower rates of major bleeding and fewer drug-to-drug or drug-food interactions this may be particularly important to older adults with frailty who are at high risk for falls and drug-related adverse events still the role of differing levels of frailty in the choice of oral anticoagulants for older adults with atrial fibrillation is unclear researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital Hebrew Senior Life and Harvard Medical School Study claims for Medicare beneficiaries with atrial fibrillation who initiated use of dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, or warfarin to compare outcomes by frailty levels. The data showed that only apixaban was consistently associated with lower rates of the composite endpoint of death, ischemic stroke, and major bleeding than warfarin across all frailty levels. According to the authors, these findings provide evidence to guide the choice of a DOAC versus warfarin for older adults with atrial fibrillation. As controversy continues to swirl around COVID 19 vaccination, Annals reports a large case control study of participants in the Veterans Administration healthcare system that found that currently used SARS CoV 2 vaccines are more than 95% effective in preventing confirmed infection in this real world population. Researchers from the VA Pittsburgh healthcare system studied health records for patients who had SARS-CoV-2 testing between December 2020 and March 2021 to evaluate the short-term effectiveness of vaccines in preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection. For each person who tested positive, a propensity score and demographic health characteristic match control participant who tested negative was identified. Data on vaccine administration date and the type of vaccine used were also retrieved. The researchers found that 18% of the 54,360 match pairs of veterans who were vaccinated tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, and 32.8% tested negative. The overall vaccine effectiveness was 97.1%, seven or more days after the second dose. Effectiveness was 96.2% for the Pfizer vaccine and 98.2% for the Moderna vaccine. Effectiveness was similar in Blacks and Whites, men and women, and those with and without higher levels of comorbidity. Next is a study that looks at whether sickle cell disease elevates the risk of poor outcomes in COVID-19. Researchers from the University of Oxford studied a national patient-level database of linked electronic health records to evaluate the risk for COVID-19-related hospitalization and death in children and adults with sickle cell disorders. The cohort included 5,059 persons with sickle cell disease and 25,682 with sickle cell trait, with data observed from January 2020 to September 2020 for hospitalizations and January 2020 to January 2021 for deaths. The researchers found that children with sickle cell disorders had five COVID-19-related hospitalizations and no deaths. Adults with sickle cell disease had 40 hospitalizations and 10 deaths. Persons with sickle cell trait had 98 hospitalizations and 50 deaths. The authors note that several aspects of sickle cell phenotypes overlap with the passive physiology of severe COVID-19, warranting future study. Given that sickle cell disease affects approximately 15,000 persons in the UK, 100,000 persons in the United States, and 8 million to 12 million persons globally, The authors suggest that these findings have important implications for informing vaccination strategy and policy decisions. Also new since our last podcast are the latest episode of Annals Consult Guys and two new Annals on Call podcast episodes. This month, the Annals Consult Guys address questions and controversies related to lipid lowering therapy in patients of advanced age. One Annals on Call podcast discusses the fate of clinician educators and the other the care of COPD. Also new on analyst.org are a series of Story Slam videos um, from early career physicians that were presented at the ACP's Future of IM meeting earlier this spring. If you want some inspiration, go to the multimedia section, look for it, the Story Slams, and listen to what these early career physicians have to say. It's quite inspiring. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.